Okay. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Uh, the writer is contrasting the two covenants coming to Mount Sinai, coming to Mount Zion. And uh, so much of Hebrews uh, is about the priesthood of Christ, but ultimately what is in view in Hebrews in the exhortation is uh, two things, really, the communal aspect of worship and then worship itself. That is the ultimate issue which is at stake and which Christ's priesthood make possible, makes possible. If you think of worship in the Old Covenant, it was tied up with the priesthood. And so uh, when, you, when you look at what he's describing here in Hebrews chapter 12, he's describing not just the context of the New Covenant, but the context of New Covenant worship. And this has a very important bearing on how we understand worship as Presbyterians. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven." Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, here's the exhortation, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And that uh, that verse, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, is... In many ways, uh, the second of two theme verses of Presbyterianism, can anyone remember what the first one is? 1 Corinthians 14, let all things be done decently and in order. Uh, that, that's huge. If you've ever been in a charismatic church, you know that admonition is utterly uh, ignored. It was actually that that led me out of the charismatic church, in fact. But really, the second theme verse is, is let us worship um, with reverence and awe. Uh, that was the New King James. I think that's that, old, uh, that old way of putting it is the King James. I think it said uh, with, I don't remember now, godly fear. How did it put it? I want, I want to know now. The New King James has, with reverence and godly fear. All right, well, the subject today is contemporary worship, which Daryl covers uh, in three chapters. It's part two of his book, Reverence and Reformed Worship, chapter four, Worship That is Deformed, chapter five, and uh, Spirit-Filled Worship, chapter six. This is a wonderful analysis, in my opinion, of uh, not only what is right with, let us call it, for lack of a better word, traditional worship. That is worship as it looked for many, many centuries. Uh, and also an analysis of what is wrong with contemporary worship. Uh, many of us have been in settings where there was contemporary worship. And while it has this initial appeal um, of spirituality, there is 
uh, in the hearts of many, certainly those who end up in the, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, a sense that something important is missing. Although it isn't always easy to articulate that. Uh, I do think, and Daryl talks about this, that the, the pure sense of triviality is enough to drive many away. But where do you think they end up, those who are driven away by the triviality of, of contemporary worship? Well, we've looked at this before. They are driven to the high church. They are driven to the Anglican church, the cathedral of the, of the Anglican church. They are driven to Roman Catholicism. Or else perhaps they're content and they stay put. Now, there is a, a small fraction like ourselves, or at least like myself, who are driven into the grand uh, historic tradition of the Reformed Church. Uh, but, the, but the problem, as uh, Daryl states at the beginning of this chapter, he says, frustrated by what they perceive as the shallowness and emptiness of much contemporary worship, some conservatives have left evangelical and Reformed communions for the Episcopal Church as well as the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. Let us not forget Eastern Orthodox, uh, whose appeal is uh, very large at the moment. Now, uh, especially among uh, conservative seekers, young conservative seekers are being drawn into the Eastern Orthodox Church. Why aren't they being drawn into Reformed churches? Uh, the answer could be that uh, the Reformed churches that are actually Reformed, they're not contemporary, but they're actually Reformed, lack the distinctive high church elements that uh, people find so pleasing. He asks a question, why then aren't more of the critics of evangelical worship dusting off copies of Calvin's ecclesiastical ordinances and the Genevan Psalter? Well, uh, this woman, Evelyn Underwood, who wrote a book on worship. I don't know her. I don't know the book. Uh, but Daryl uses her description of Reformed worship uh, to describe perhaps why Calvinistic Reformed churches lack this appeal. And this is what you read. No organ or choir was permitted in his churches. No color, no ornament, but a table of the Ten Commandments on the wall. No ceremonial acts or gestures were permitted. No hymns were sung but those derived from a biblical source. And so in Calvin's Geneva, you actually had only the singing of psalms. You actually had no instruments. Uh, and so what you would be struck with, much more so than even in our worship service, was the simplicity uh, and almost uh, everything uh, whittled down to its barest possible form. Daryl goes on. People looking for elaborate liturgy, heightened experience, and high drama find little appeal in Reformed worship. The Reformed tradition stripped worship bare. There's the word I just used. They stripped it bare, critics argue, denying the human elements of worship, and left Presbyterians with no liturgy, no ritual, and hence no room for sacrament, a sacramental presence of worship. Well... That's the way the, the criticism goes anyways. And that's what occurs in the minds of many. Frustrated with uh, the low church sentiments, reformed churches simply don't make sense. Underwood, Underwood uh, confesses, I, I don't, again, I don't know who this woman is or what her book is, but, uh, but listen to this. She says, the bleak interior of the real Calvinistic church 
is itself sacramental, a witness of the inadequacy of the human over against the divine. Well, that has a way of uh, describing the dilemma, but also uh, of explaining why the Reformed tradition and its worship looks the way it does. Uh, This is a point that we have looked at before. Uh, Again, confessing that those who have a yearning for the high church sentiments are going to be frustrated with Calvinistic worship. Uh, But we have to understand that for Calvin, and this is certainly true of ourselves, uh, if if we are truly his sons, that uh, worship is an expression of our theology. And so in order to understand the form of worship that was found in Calvin's churches and in his heirs, we have to understand his worship. Worship is something that is an expression of our theology. That's something we've seen again and again. But also, if we are to understand Calvin's theology properly, we would assign the first place to worship itself. It is the primary and the chief act of an aim of the Christian life. Not to say that all of the Christian life is worship, that is true, but to say that the Christian life is most focused and, uh, and most clarified uh, on Sabbath, in the setting of Sabbath worship when the saints come together, just as is expressed so many times in Hebrews. It's when we come together that we both find out what we really believe and, and we express what we believe about God and about ourselves. And so... Uh, again, what, what Calvin was seeking to do was not simply to appeal to the high church sentiments of people. You had that obviously uh, running wild in the medieval Catholic church, but rather to reform worship according to scripture. That is what Calvin was seeking to do. And, and it's out of this that he articulated what we know as the regulative principle of worship. And there is two reasons for the regulative principle of worship. Uh, the first is our desire to obey God. If, if someone were to come into our church and say, you know, it's missing the elements that we want, that appeal to our desire uh, for, for something, whatever it is. Uh, I don't want to take any cheap shots, so I'm not going to give any examples. But uh, there, there, there are many examples we could give. They say, why don't we have this in a reform worship service? Uh, we would say... Well, can, can you find it in Scripture? Can you find this as something which the New Testament prescribes for new, for, for new Covenant worship? The sense of the divine is what we're all seeking. But the question is, where can we find the divine? And where will we stand in awe of the divine? And, and Calvin's answer and the Puritan's answer was always in the simplicity of scriptural worship. In the simplicity of scriptural worship. But the other side of things in appealing, again, uh, to the sinfulness of so much high church worship and and the craving that people have for it. Again, you think about the setting of the Reformation. What they were doing was basically bringing the church down uh, the spectrum. I'm arguing that the church has become too low church and we need to come back up. That's what Daryl's arguing. But in the setting of the Reformation, the church was totally elaborate and it had gotten away from Scripture and they were bringing it to a lower a lower uh, state on, on the high church ladder. Now, the Anabaptists went wild with that, and they argued against them as well. But what they were saying was wrong with the high church worship of their, their day was not only that it lacked scriptural warrant, which ought to end the discussion right there, 
But crucial to his understanding was the sinfulness of man. It isn't just our desire to be scriptural and obey God, but it is our recognition that just as our piety or our holiness is most expressed in worship and best expressed in worship, it's also the case that our sinful desires to craft God after our own image and our own desires and our own sensibilities occur in worship as well. And so if, if reform worship seems very restrained, uh, even, the, even the minister's personality, you know, why, why, are, why aren't I up there cracking jokes? I mean, I'm certainly capable of that, and I might even do it in Sunday school. Why isn't it just this, this chat session, uh, or whatever you want to call it? Uh, it but everything is seemingly restrained and subdued even. One of the reasons is because we are very conscious uh, of the sinfulness of man. And it's something we want to restrain. We want to keep the flesh in check. We want to keep uh, the desire, the sinful desire to be entertained. And, and again, to fashion a God after our own image. And we are conscious of the fact that, uh, that God... Well, when, when the human asserts itself too much in any element or arena of the Christian life, certainly in worship... Then, uh, then it obscures the divine. And so I, I heard a guy once put it this way, that in his preaching, his job was to get out of the way. He was not a certain... He had a great personality. He was one of the most likable and intelligent men I've ever met, but his preaching was very subdued. I'm not saying dry as dust academic. That's not what I'm saying. But he wasn't bringing his full personality to the bear, charming the ears of the people. He was trying to get out of the way. Now, you might disagree with that. You, a lot probably do. Uh, but, but, but that's the idea. Okay? We have good reasons for what we're doing. And, uh, and, and we looked at an earlier class that what typically draws people to Reformed churches is, is what? I, I, I have it in my mind, but I, I want to hear if anyone knows what it is. It's, a, it's the intellectual side. It's people who are dissatisfied with, uh, again, the triviality of evangelical worship, and, and they're drawn to the preaching. They feel as though it appeals to their intellect. But that's not right. It, it Really, our, our greatest appeal should be in the worship. Now, the preaching assumes a, 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 a central place in that, but, but the worship of the church is the main thing that we're offering, and it's where our witness is shining most brightly. The question which we ought to be able to answer is, why does our worship look like it does? Now, th- these very issues are the kinds of things that even Presbyterians end up arguing over. But if, if we let these two things be our guide, then I think uh, we will not be, in general, led astray. Again, our desire to obey God, scriptural worship, and the sinfulness of man. Many of the things people clamor for are because a, of a certain sinful desire. Now, and if you look at the main sin, by the way, of the Old Covenant, what was it? It's obvious as day if you've ever read the Old Testament. Idolatry. Idolatry. Over and over and over and over and over again. The Old Testament is a test case in worship. God prescribes worship. He said, you saw no form, you are to make no form. And what do they keep doing? They kept making the forms. And so the Old Testament is, is a great handbook on worship and, and, and really the ways in which we are prone to fall in the same ways that they did. And the New Testament even says that it was written for our example so that we wouldn't fall in unbelief as they did. How did they fall? They gave in to idolatry. So again, we see that, that worship is the central concern of the Christian life. And it is something that is so easily distorted. 
So there is, there is our defense for why it looks uh, like it does, but it, admittedly we understand why someone who is coming up the, the, the rungs of the ladder of the high church spectrum perhaps would be dissatisfied at first brush in a Reformed worship service. And maybe, maybe you would at first as well if you think about it. Your first experience perhaps was unsatisfying. Uh, Daryl explains what are, we've, we've looked at lists like this before, so I'll just briefly work through this. The main tenets of Reformed worship, we did that several classes ago, but uh, he explores them again, the first of which is the centrality of God's word, which makes sense in light of what uh, I've just been saying. Uh, the second uh, of which is, th- this one is crucial. The centrality of God's word, uh, of God, not God's word. God's word was the first one. Uh, centrality of God. Something I sometimes other pastors will remind me, and that is, who is the audience of worship? Who's the audience of preaching? What did you, what did you say, Aaron? God. God. <laughs> it almost sounds counterintuitive. I sometimes ministers will say an audience of one. Now I can hear you know other ministers, and this is certainly true, uh, stepping in and saying, now don't forget the people. Too often, uh, the minister is simply delighting in his sermon as an act of personal worship with God, and he forgets the people. (laughs) Well, don't forget the people, but the the idea of the audience of one, it's the same for you. Uh, You're not coming there to sit as a critic of the preaching. Um, That isn't the purpose there. Now, if the preaching is is off base, you you, you should have discerning ears. But the question is, did you meet with God? Or did you even set out to meet with God? But the, the, the primary spectator of worship is God. And that also has a way, Daryl helpfully points out, and this certainly explains deformed contemporary worship. Who is, who is the main spectator in a contemporary worship service? Be even more specific than people. Be even more specific. Because that's actually wrong. It's the unbeliever who might have happened to come in based on your evangelistic uh, service, uh, evangelistic appeals. The purpose of worship in many contemporary settings is to have a broad appeal to the world. The primary purpose is evangelism. Now that is an aberrant view of worship, at least in the, in the eyes of Calvin and of uh, myself. The, pri- the, the primary audience is God, not the people and not the unbeliever. The per- I'll say it again. I got a lot of trouble five years for saying this. But I'll say it again. My convictions have not changed. Purpose of worship is not evangelism. It is a meeting between God and his people. Leading to the third principle. And that is the dialogical character of worship. A meeting between God and his people. Something that Daryl points out though. These chapters are so helpful. Even to me. Is that we think about God speaking to his people. Well, that's fairly straightforward. But how, what are the appropriate ways for God's people to respond to him? Well, that's also described and defined by scripture. And so the forms, uh, the biblical forms of of response are are not to just be uh, made up willy-nilly, but they actually have, uh, they actually uh, ought to have biblical warrant. God's word prescribes acceptable ways to respond to him in worship. We're going to come back to that. So I'll just leave that there for a minute. 
the, the fourth principle is simplicity and connected with simplicity, that of spirituality. And connected with that is the idea of routine and ritual. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a product of modern evangelicalism. Sometimes we stand and we sing the doxology and I think, boy, you know, it's the same thing every time. I mean, there is a part of me that, that longs for the spontaneous. Uh, uh, but but there, there is... There is value in routine. There is value in ritual. Uh, Do you know why, by the way, that is valuable? Because it takes the focus off of yourself. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about uh, the problem with so much novelty is that it places all of the focus on the participant. Um, I I, I don't really have time to get into this in in any depth. Uh, I'm, I'm eager to get to some of my critiques of contemporary worship. But the fifth, the fifth element of reform worship is reverence, which actually, Dar- I don't agree with Daryl here, by the way, but he says it's the most important principle. I think in a context where you were debating with contemporary worship, you, you would probably say that uh, based upon Hebrews chapter 12. Again, what is the acceptable way for me to respond to God in worship? Well, certainly with reverence and awe, but also with biblical simplicity not with elaborate and ornate liturgies. So there are good reasons for why re- reform worship looks as, as it does. And I have expressed my own delight in the, uh, not the Westminster, but the, uh, the current directory of public worship. Uh, I confess, uh, and I don't know whether this makes me a dork or not, but I confess that it has brought tears to my eyes. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I love that book. I do not, by the way, well, I'm not going to finish that sentence, but there are other things that I don't like. Uh, I'm not a polity guy. I'll just leave it at that. But I am a worship guy. I love the Directory of Public Worship, and I love the original one even more, the, which the Westminster, uh, the writers of the Westminster Confession wrote. They wrote... Uh, confession, but also directory of worship. But Daryl describes uh, what he calls the revisionist impulse. There has, uh, there was, and it was even stated in the OPC General Assembly at one point. I, I, I'll have to look in the book to see when this was. 1989, there was OPC General Assembly uh, a statement of dissatisfaction with the directory of public worship. Uh, just a confession that it had fallen out of use. That people were not happy with it, people were not using it. So the question arose whether it ought to be revised. There is, in in essence, even in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, to some measure, certainly in other communions to a greater measure, a general dissatisfaction with Reformed worship as expressed in the Directory of Public Worship. The desire has been, which we saw in earlier classes, to change the form while retaining the theology. So let us have a more contemporary expression of worship while holding on to Calvin's theology. Now, I've already told you why that's impossible. The worship is an expression of the theology. You might as well change the theology, which is, by the way, what ends up happening by reverse process ultimately. Where do they look when when they want to change the form? They look to pop culture. Again, this is where Daryl's analysis is, is outstanding. But this is deeply ironic given the evangelicals' general condemnation of all things pop culture. Uh, he, he, he speaks of the irony of condemning R-rated movies while allowing a worship service to look like a sitcom or uh, a late-night TV show. Uh, these are the things which are now informing what contemporary worship looks like. 
the two most prominent features of pop culture are entertainment and informality. Entertainment and informality. And again, if you think, just think of a late night TV show, you'll notice that's the way things go. And it is precisely those forms, because they are familiar, that have worked their way into the worship service. The question which Daryl closes with this chapter uh, is, One wonders how Reformed churches can meaningfully retain their theological heritage while abandoning the essence of Reformed worship. Especially since weekly worship provides the foundation and reinforces the very theology that Reformed believers confess. And so that leads him to, to, uh, to deal with contemporary worship in the next chapter, worship that uh, is deformed, he calls it. And he describes what's, what he calls and what is called praise and worship like this. He says, what characterizes this style of worship is the praise song. Four words, three notes, and two hours. <laughs> with mantra-like repetition of phrases from scripture displayed use, uh, using an overhead projector or video monitor and accompanied by standard pieces and a rock band. Yeah, that's not a caricature. That is exactly what you'll find. find. Uh, gone are the hymnals that kept the faithful in touch with previous generations of saints. They were abandoned in many cases because they were considered too boring, too doctrinal, too restrained. There's that word again, restrained. Though maybe we had good reasons for being restrained. Given, again, our sinfulness and our propensity to distort worship. He says, gone too are the traditional elements of Protestant worship. The invocation, the confession of sins, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the doxology, the Gloria Patri. Again, you go into a contemporary worship service, all of those are gone. You have 30 minutes of song, then a 30-minute sermon, and then you're gone. Well, do I even... I'll be fair. I'll call it a sermon. I'll still call it a sermon. Uh, but um, I don't even know if they would. I mean, in many cases, they've really brought the, the, the sense down to the level of the purely familiar. Uh, so would they call it a conversation? I don't know. In many cases, they would. Um, And while praise and worship has retained the talking head in the sermon, probably the most boring element of Protestant worship, again, and I tell my kids this, worship is, to the flesh, it's boring. The sermon is boring, isn't it? Let's just be honest about it. It's not entertainment, okay? <laughs> uh, so this is the most boring part. It's when the man stands up there in a restrained fashion, uh, delivers his sermon. He says the substance in, in praise and worship is, uh, of much preaching is more therapeutic than theological. Although, again, he points to the irony of this, he says, and even the hypocrisy of this, he says, six days a week they trumpet traditional values and the heritage of the West, but on Sunday they're the most novel. Indeed, the patterns of worship that prevail in most evangelical congregations suggest these Protestants are no more interested in tradition than uh, their arch enemies in the academy. And so they're iconoclasts like the modern progressives in the academy. Well, Daryl speaks of, uh, in the previous chapter, it was the, the features of pop culture were entertainment and informality. In, uh, in this chapter, he speaks of late night TV and teenage piety. Both are familiar. Uh, what, what is uh, driving, looking at teenage piety, what's driving so much contemporary worship is the sense of the youth retreat. And it's basically people who grew up in the youth retreat trying to recreate that experience Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. But both of these are wrong. Both late night TV 
and teenage piety, but no one knows why. The problem is that they are as enslaved to modern techniques as they claim the traditionalists are to tradition. But the question also, which we've already looked at, is who is the focus of the worship service? When you think about constructing whether a, what we call traditional or contemporary worship service, who, who is the focus? The one we worship or the worshiper? Who is the primary audience? Also, the problem with therapeutic culture is it is impossible to criticize. I'm somewhat picking up the pace. I just want to make sure I finish. It's impossible to cr- criticize the triumph of the feelings. If worship gave you a sense of inspiration, that's the trump card in a therapeutic culture. I was uplifted. Therefore, it was right. (laughs) I talked to my neighbor a few years ago. He said, all I want is an experience of God without defining what that means. Well, I agree we want an experience of God, but are we able to define what that means? Well, in a therapeutic culture, you're not supposed to. As long as the person felt uplifted, the argument is won. Or what about this? The criteria for what makes good worship or bad worship. One of the things Daryl says is the the modern sensibilities are incapable of distinguishing good and bad taste. And so there appear to be no standards. There is nothing that is beyond the pale anymore. The only thing that matters is that which uplifts or that which attracts outsiders And what you are left with, according to Mencken, this was a contemporary of Machen, though he was an unbeliever, and so he's criticizing this even in the early early 20th century, what you're left with is a form of Christianity that is akin to the barroom, the the familiar, the easy, as opposed to the theology of the divine, the profound, the mystery. People in contemporary worship stand on easy and familiar terms with God. But then we might ask, are they really even worshiping? The church today, rather than employing its own categories and methods and thus teaching the world what it means to worship God, has rather reversed the process and has begun to ask the world, how ought we to worship God? In an effort to make converts. But at some point, the question has to be asked, converts to what? Is it really at a certain point, even Christianity, that we're offering them anymore? Hughes Oliphant and Old, Daryl uh, uh, quotes Hughes Oliphant and Old in saying that it is the difference between a well aged wine, which is refined and beautiful, that the church has uh, crafted over the years, and Kool Aid. I'll read the quote. And this is from the book, uh, Worship Reformed According to Scripture, which I've quoted several times. He says, in our evangelistic zeal, we are looking for programs that will attract people. We think we have to put honey on the lip of the bitter cup of salvation. It's the story of the wedding of Cana all over again, but with this difference. At the crucial moment when the wine failed, we took matters into our own hands and used those five stone jars to mix up a batch of Kool-Aid instead.
let me go on with the quote. This is now Daryl speaking. Such is the state of affairs in contemporary evangelical worship. The thin artificial juice of popular culture has replaced the finely aged and well-crafted drink of the church through the ages. There's one final point to be made. And that is what is meant by spirit-filled worship, which is the, the third of these three chapters on contemporary worship. And he, he interacts with the assumptions of evangelical piety. Again, piety is a word that's fallen out of use. Piety just means devotion. It means godliness. The idea is how do we walk out our Christian faith? Uh, the assumption of evangelical piety with regard to the spirit and spirit-filled worship is, well, I want to see if anyone could, who hasn't read the chapter can, can guess. Where is the spirit most present in worship? What's that? I'm thinking in the believer. Well, no, I mean, in, in, I'm looking more for the wrong answer. <laughs> in spontaneous expression, in individual expression. We talked about this earlier. One of the reasons that evangelicals today reject liturgy is because they do not believe it is possible to express Christian devotion in the words of another. And so we have to throw away the catechisms, we have to throw away the confessions and the creeds, and we even have to throw away the the age-old hymns, and we have to start over with every generation. Well, it's the same thing here. It's the individual expression, it's the element of the spontaneous. What reigns here in this paradigm is individual expression, as opposed to historic forms for expressing our faith. Again, you start over with every generation and even in some sense with every individual. Which is also why, by the way, in many contemporary services, they're constantly changing. I don't know if you've ever lived through one of these life cycles in a, in a, in a megachurch, but man alive, they have a different theme almost every Sunday. Uh, and so just the inspiration of the moment. And what was the straw that broke the camel's back for me was the hoedown service when they brought in bales of hay and the worship team had overalls and, and uh, bandanas around their necks. And I said, that's it. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. This is insane. Uh, this is insulting to me and to God. But this is what you, you get the idea. It is constantly in flux. Never, nothing can ever be settled. You're always open to the inspiration of the moment. So there's no form, there's only freedom. Freedom reigns. This is based upon a misunderstanding of Christ's teaching in John 4.24. Can anyone tell me what that verse is? We need to finish, but uh, what is Christ saying uh, true worshipers do? They worship in spirit and in truth. Now, instead of taking one chapter for six weeks, we're now taking three chapters in one week. We're going to do the same next week and the next week, and then we're done. So I am going a little faster here. Um, But it took us, I think, eight weeks to get through chapter one. I don't want that to continue. Or maybe it was chapter two. Um, What is Jesus talking about there? Is that passage actually about the manner of worship? Daryl has a great analysis here. He's a historian, not not a biblical exegete. But is, is is it about the manner of worship? Or is it about the timing of it? Jesus says the time is coming and now is. When true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And he was speaking uh, to the, what, it was the Samaritan woman, right? She was outside of, his, uh, of, of Judea. Or Judah, Judea, whatever. Um, 
He's saying, I, I want you to understand that worship extends everywhere where the Spirit is now that I have come. And especially once the Spirit was poured out in, Pan- in Pentecost. But in, in the modern evangelical setting, for them, that means, that expression means that we are worshiping in spirit and in truth whenever individual expression reigns. But Jesus is saying that now the time has come when all who worship the Father through the Son worship him in spirit and in truth. But what does that mean? And here we need to understand the relationship between the truth and the spirit. People, people have forgotten the second half of that equation. Not just the spirit, but the truth. This is not in any sense a statement about spontaneity. If anything, it mitigates against spontaneity. Because the ministry of the Spirit is constrained precisely by what? The truth. The purpose of the sending of the Spirit was to lead us into all truth. So that we might know Christ. And so that we might, unlike Israel, whose long history is full of idolatry, we might actually worship the true God in truth, full of the Spirit. And so we have to understand the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit and the bearing this would have on worship now that Christ has come. The ministry of the Spirit is that he reveals truth. He leads us into all truth. And that that leads us then to close with this question. What would a Spirit-filled worship service look like? Does it look like the chaos of the charismatic worship service that I've I've been through? I'm not... (laughs) I'm not portraying a caricature. Uh, does it look like the hoedown service uh, on the whims of the, the evangelistically minded pastor? Uh, and everybody buys in and we're going to do this and, and do it with great zeal and, and, a, and a seeming joy. Is that a spirit-filled worship service? Is a spirit-filled worship service primarily a service in which emotions are moved? I won't deny where the spirit is present, emotions are certainly stirred. But as is that, are emotions the primary criteria? I was uplifted, I was stirred, I was convicted, whatever. Or is it true, again, going back to Calvin's point, that the services which are most full of the spirit are the services which are most full of the truth? When Paul says, I've pointed this out many times, but in Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3, these are parallel letters and parallel sections. And, and he goes through a series about worship. I want you to sing songs. I want you to, to love one another and so forth. But, but he says in Ephesians 4, it's clear they're parallel passages if you look at them. He says, be full of the Spirit. But, it, but he changes the wording, conveying the same truth in Colossians. And what does he say? He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And he's saying exactly the same thing. To be full of the Spirit is to be full of the Word of God. To be full of the Word of God is to be full of the Spirit. That, at any rate, is the conviction of Reformed churches. Uh, let, me, let me read just a little bit of Daryl and then we'll, we'll be done. He says, what this means, well, he says, is it possible to conceive of Spirit-filled worship that's not also truth-filled? And the answer is no. And because it is no, this means, he says, that a spirit-filled worship service will be one that conforms to the revelation of the Bible. Looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in this way means that so-called traditional worship, as opposed to contemporary forms, has the greatest claim to being spirit-filled. He 
He says, much Protestant thinking equates, I'm skipping around a little bit here, much Protestant thinking equates the work of the Spirit with emotions, not with understanding and believing the Bible. It also shows how much contemporary Protestant thought has separated the work of the Spirit from the teaching of God's Word. Ironically, the the most distinctive feature of Reformed worship is the very thing that makes it Spirit-filled, and that is its emphasis on the Bible. And it is its insistence that every part of worship have a biblical warrant. And so he says, Scripture therefore functions as a barometer for evaluating a worship service and the extent to which it is Spirit-filled. Our appeal ought to be to the Bible to determine what makes worship Spirit-filled. For this reason, it is impossible to conceive of Spirit-filled worship being anything other than Bible-directed worship. And he closes by saying, and we'll close with this, Christian worship is not true only when Christians are moved. Rather, Christian worship is true when it conforms to Scripture, whether worshipers experience it or not. When the church gathers for the reading of Scripture with godly fear, the sound preaching of the word, prayer, with thanksgiving, with the singing of praise, with grace in the heart, and the administration, and the worthy receiving of the sacraments, then and only then is worship spirit-filled, he said. And uh, I, I suppose with those words, we can close with a word of prayer and head next door. Father in heaven, we are grateful for not only the teaching of scripture, but the teaching of, uh, of men who stand in this tradition. And we ask you that we might, at the very least, O oh God, understand why it is our worship looks as it does and be able to give uh, n- not only good reasons for it, but our own hearty consent to it as we worship. We pray uh, above all that we might, as we come together, meet with you in the hour of worship and be blessed and that you might be blessed through our praises. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.